John. Glory to you, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice in the weekend's bulletin that we've got a good problem here at Christ the King. They almost moved my visual aid here. We've got a good problem here at Christ the King, and that problem is that our, what probably we'd be used to calling RCIA class was so big this year, we had to split them in two. So we brought in 14 people at the Easter Vigil, and we have another 16 people. Actually, that's a typo in the bulletin. 18 people we're bringing in tomorrow. So we had more than 30 people join the Catholic Church this year. When I confirm those people tomorrow, I'll anoint them with the sacred chrism, and I'll say, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. But seal, most of us hear seal, and we think the guys that are down the street of the zoo, right? That's not what we mean by a seal. Seal, in this sense, is like one of these, which probably most of us don't own because nobody uses things like these anymore except the church. Seals, right, and the government, yeah. Seals are, are an antique form of identity protection. They're a way of validating or authenticating who sent a message, right? So in olden times, you'd write a letter, and in those days, you didn't really write letters to strangers, so probably the person that received it would already know what your signature looked like and know your handwriting, and then you would seal it That is, you'd pour wax on it, and then there would be this embossment that would go over the wax. And so long as the wax hadn't been tampered with, you knew that nobody had seen your message. So, unbroken seal, signature you recognize, two-factor authentication. You could be sure that the message came from the person it said it did and got to its intended recipient. What does it mean, then, to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? When we were baptized, those of us that were baptized as infants, we were met at the door by the priest or the deacon, and we were signed with the sign of the cross on the forehead, the same way that those who are confirmed will be signed with oil on the forehead. And the priest or deacon said something like, the Christian The Church of God welcomes you with great joy. In its name, I sign you with the sign of the cross. The Latin here is seal. I seal you with the sign of the cross. And I invite your parents and your godparents to do the same. A lot of families, especially in our Hispanic community, that happens every time the kiddos leave the house. Signed again with the sign of the cross. 
Those of us who were not cremated by the time we're waked, the very last thing the priest or the deacon will do at our wake is sign us with the sign of the cross. What then is the need for this sealing with the Spirit? Because we, in the last hundred years in this country, long, complicated history, not real important, but because most of us are used to confirmation happening in adolescence, and because adolescents tend to be really concerned about being able to, to, to make things their own, to claim them for themselves, we've gotten used to talking about confirmation as though this is somehow about the children choosing the faith for themselves. You'll notice if you ever go to a confirmation liturgy, there's nothing in the church's prayers that say anything like that. And there's a very good reason for it. It's not that we don't all need to claim the faith for ourselves. That is very important. And the older a person is when they're confirmed, all the more important they're bought into the process, no doubt. But the kids aren't the ones confirming their faith. You don't confirm yourself. If you did, you wouldn't need the church. It's the bishop or the priest whom he delegates, acting in his name, in the name of the church, who confirms, validates, authenticates the faith that is already in that person, the faith that was given first at baptism. It's not like the Father and the Son are given at baptism, but the Spirit hangs back until we get oil on you. It is instead that the gifts of the Spirit are given nascently to all of us the moment the water hits our head. But just as natural growth takes time, the, the, the latent abilities that each of us have to grow and move, to sing and run, to, to play and change and think, that just as those take time to make themselves manifest in the lives of the faithful, so also the supernatural gifts take time to work their way out so that we grow in wisdom and understanding, and courage and reverence. We grow in all the gifts that the Spirit has to give over time. And those have to be unlocked, stimulated, stirred up, brought to birth. What the seal does is it validates, it authenticates, it ensures the authenticity of the faith in the one who's being confirmed. And it continues to do the same thing for every one of us who has already been confirmed. That's why confirmation, like baptism and like ordination, can't be repeated. You don't ever get confirmed again. In fact, the way that we tend to confirm now with older people is really a memory of a kind of an older practice of what would happen when Christian communities became separated from each other, and it wasn't clear when the group came back whether their faith was legit, whether it was real, whether it was orthodox, whether it was sound. And so the bishop would interrogate them and and, and, and if he was satisfied that they were really part of us, that we could do this thing together, then he would confirm the authenticity of their faith. I'm using that word authenticity not as a moral marker for the individual, like whether or not they, they, they feel bought in, though that, again, is important, but that the, but that the faith, the supernatural peace that doesn't come from you but comes from God is real, that the church recognizes in you something that's real and doesn't come from you. 
but comes from God himself. Now, the church recognized this collectively first at the Pentecost, but it didn't start there. The Spirit of God is present on almost every page of the Bible. From the very beginning, he hovers over the waters in the chaos before the creation. And then when God splits the water from the dry land, the light from the darkness, when he begins to make the the, the creatures of the sky and of the sea and of the earth, when he forms the man out out of the clay, how does he give life to the man but... He breathes his own spirit into him. You'll notice today in the gospel, Jesus did the very same thing. On this resurrection Sunday for St. John, he breathes on them and he makes creation new. He starts it all over again. He also breathes his spirit very subtly in a way maybe hard to discern, on the cross, he cries out and gives up his spirit. The spirit of God moves throughout the life of God's people and especially in the church. Last week, I preached on the ascension as a sort of feast of the body, that the body of the Lord is, 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 is one with ours, that a body just like ours now sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. Today, Pentecost is in a certain sense the feast of the soul because the Holy Spirit is the soul of the church. It's what enlivens and empowers and gives form and shape and direction to our life as a people, which is why the Spirit of God is always one of unity. That's the meaning of these strange languages, Right? At Pentecost, the curse of Babel is undone, and people can speak in one language and be understood in another. The thing that charismatically is often known as the gift of tongues is a, is a real thing, but, but what's happening on Pentecost Sunday is a different thing, right? Peter and the others are speaking in Aramaic or Hebrew or very poor Greek, and people from other parts of the world who can't understand anybody else in a city can suddenly understand them. And I'll tell you what, this still happens, because even though the bishop put this white kid in charge of Hispanic ministry, my Spanish is not that good. But there are times when I am preaching, and more often times when I am in the confessional, and I know I don't know how to say what I'm trying to say, but somehow the person on the other end understands exactly what I'm trying to say. Most priests I know who work in more than one language have exactly this experience. See, the thing is, the Holy Spirit is most often subtle. Not sneaky, but but subtle. It doesn't come with loud bangs and flashes. The presence of the Holy Spirit isn't known mostly with special effects. That's the way we tend to imagine this Pentecost Sunday. I don't think it was really so much like that. I have no idea what the tongues of fire actually looked like, but I know that imagistically they're pointing backwards to the pillar of fire that went before the people in the desert. Now, it doesn't just go before the people, but it rests on each one so that God's Spirit isn't given uniquely, say, to Moses, or in this case, to Peter, who winds up speaking for the group, but that everybody becomes a prophet. Everybody begins to prophesy, and everybody begins to manifest the gift of God's own Spirit. 
it's also worth noting that the, the way, right, this even gets described, when the Feast of Pentecost had come, or when the days of the Pentecost were accomplished, which should tell you something, this is not an origin a Christian feast. The whole city is not gathered there because they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. The apostles and the others are gathered in the upper room because they're waiting for the Spirit or for the gift that Jesus has promised that they don't yet understand. But the Jews are having a party. This is a Jewish feast. And the Feast of the Pentecost is very, very important for us because it helps us understand exactly what God's doing here. The Pentecost, the 50th day after the Passover, marks the giving of the law. This was the day that God gave the law to Moses and so to the people. Now, he gives us not a law meant to correct bad behavior, but a spirit meant to direct us toward good behavior. Here, he doesn't give us a law meant to bind, to, to, to burden, to constrain, but a spirit that's meant to liberate, to, to, to cast out evil and to bring in good. Here, he gives not a law which will define the life of but one people, but a spirit intended to encapsulate all the peoples of all the world. God goes as big at Pentecost as he does ever. And the spirit that first came upon the apostles in the upper room on that day comes upon us today. He did in a particular and a sure way. He, he stirred to birth the spirit given at baptism on the day of our confirmation. But, but, but today, tonight, right now in this place, God's spirit hovers again. And there are, in fact, little tongues of fire dancing over your head, whether you can see it or not. It's what the tradition calls sanctifying grace. It's, it's that spark of God that lives inside you and that connects you to God and through that connection to God to every other person you ever meet. It's that spirit that drew those 18 people who'll be brought in tomorrow. It's that same spirit that drew together the 20 couples that'll be married here over the course of the next 12 weeks. It's that same spirit that drives to repentance those who every day hit us up in the confessional, trying to grow in faith, hope, and love to be the sort of people that God wants them to be, to recognize the places where God isn't yet, and to cling fiercely to the gift of grace so that he can be new. And it is that spirit that tonight will transform gifts of bread and wine. And if you allow him, will transform you. So that, as the apostles on that Pentecost day went boldly into the world to proclaim the risen Lord Jesus, you too will be changed. And by that change transformed, emboldened to do the same. <laughs>